11, and in particular the 15th verse. I'd like to look at this theme, which summarizes everything that has gone on up to this point. Particularly with the fall of Jerusalem, God's vindicatory judgment on Jerusalem for the sake of his son, we read that the kingdoms of this world, get the right chapter here, chapter 11, verse 15, when the seventh angel sounded, thereby ending the trumpet judgments, bringing them to a climax, there followed great voices in heaven, the cherubim, I believe, and they sing, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Our Westminster Larger Catechism teaches that Christ executes the office of a king, and he does so by, among other things, bestowing saving grace upon his elect. Christ is a king first and foremost because he is a savior. He exercises his kingly prerogatives by drawing people out of the world and making them part of his redemptive kingdom. Acts 5.31 puts it this way, Him has God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So you see the princely work, the kingly work of Christ, more generally, is associated with his saving ministry, giving repentance and forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is first and foremost an internal reality. In John, the third chapter, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except one be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You notice how the word king, the phrase kingdom of God is used there. One has to be born from above. One has to be born again in order to experience the kingdom of God. One cannot enter the kingdom apart from spiritual rebirth. And in Colossians 1, verse 13, we read that those who are redeemed have already been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So Romans 14, verse 17, can conclude that the kingdom of God is... Anybody complete the sentence? According to Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is an internal reality. Now the question I'm going to ask, however, is this. Is the kingdom of God merely an internal reality? We have a number of people... Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who have come to the conclusion that the kingdom of God is simply a matter of our hearts being changed and our belonging to Jesus Christ, that there are no visible, external, outward effects of the rule of Jesus Christ. That he's a king means that he rules over my heart internally, secretly, invisibly. Now, I don't want to, in any sense, diminish the biblical truth that the kingdom of God is an internal 
and spiritual reign by Jesus Christ in our hearts. I simply want to ask the question as we begin our study tonight, is that all that the Bible has to say? Now, the Bible says that much, and it's very important. Just the verses I've read for you already would indicate that. But is it accurate to say that the reign of Christ is restricted to the heart of man? Or does the reign of Christ extend beyond the heart of the believer into all of the believer's activities and actually into the world and the state of the world? Does Christ reign in any external, visible, or this worldly fashion as well? Well, that's the question. Here are some verses that I want us to look at as we um, study this question. Let me just go around the table, and I'll give these out for as many as um, I have, and we'll read them at the appropriate time. Daniel 4, 17. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Glenn. Acts 28, 23. Matthew 13, verses 38 and 41. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Matthew 21, verse 43, Stacy. Judith, Matthew 12, 28. Oh. Okay, we'll give that to Amy. Then Matthew 12, 28. Then uh, Jim, Matthew 7, 21 to 28. 21 to 23, excuse me. Thirty-eight to forty-one. Okay, then Colossians one verses sixteen, eighteen, and twenty. First Peter one fifteen. First Corinthians ten thirty-one. Matthew thirteen twenty-three, Matthew twenty-one forty-three, Matthew seven, sixteen to twenty-one, James one, twenty-two, to well, we're not going to read all that, so let me skip that one. First Corinthians fifteen, verses twenty-five and twenty-six, Matthew six ten, Jim. John 18.36 Matthew 28.18 Matthew 6.31-33 1 Timothy 4.8 I think we've done this one already. 1 Peter 2.9 and Revelation 5 9. We'll do this for the first quarter of our study. And then. Okay, now remember that the question before us is Is the kingdom of God merely internal, or does it have external, visible, outward effects as well? 
before we can answer this question about the kingdom of God, it is necessary to draw some distinctions, however. And this is, I believe, the critical stumbling point for most theologians when they discuss the kingdom of God. They don't draw these distinctions and keep them in mind, and therefore they're misled when they come to drawing conclusions about the nature of the kingdom today. First of all, we have to differentiate between the providential kingdom of God and the messianic kingdom of God. Sounds like highfalutin theological language. What do we mean by this? The providential kingdom of God means God's rule through providence. What is providence? His sovereign reign over every historical event. The Bible tells us that God rules in such a way that whatever happens in history is according to his will. As I mean, he approves of everything that happens in history. There's a great mystery there. But he has planned and controls everything. Daniel 4, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic, angelic watchers, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, in order that the living men know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on him and wishes, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Okay, here's Daniel saying, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Whatever happens in the kingdom of men, the most high God has determined it. So God rules providentially. Does that mean that everything that takes place is good since God has planned it? One of the things he planned, for instance, was the death of his son. Does that mean the death of his son was good? It does work out for the good of his people, but does that mean that everything that happens in history God will approve of? No. He will judge murderers and adulterers and etc., 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 even though he may have predestined that these things happen. So there's a sense in which God rules in an almighty way in every event. And that's what we call providence. But that has to be distinguished from a different kind of rule of God, which I will call the messianic rule of God, whereby... The divine rule breaks the power of evil and secures redemption for God's elect. The divine rule breaks the power of evil and secures redemption for God's elect. You see the difference there? In the first, the providential rule of God, everything that happens is part of his plan, whether it's good or evil. But in the messianic rule of God, that rule is expressed in good things happening where the power of evil is broken and God's people are saved. And we see this also in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I was looking in visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Is this the right one? Is that chapter 7? No. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, 
that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now you'll notice that we just read from Daniel the fourth chapter a moment ago saying that God rules in the kingdom of men. And yet in Daniel 7 we're, we're told that rule is given to the Son of Man so that all people might serve him. So there's a sense in which God rules even through the evil deeds of men, but there's another sense in which his Son will be given rule over all nations so they will submit to his good rule. So we must distinguish between providence on the one hand, the sovereignty of God, and the messianic rule of God on the other. Anybody have any questions about that distinction? Is it a hard one to draw? What is the critical point that will always show you the difference between them? Well, the, that's right. The providential rule of God encompasses every event in history, good or evil. Whereas the messianic rule of God pertains to those things that takes, take place in history that are pleasing to God and, and break the power of evil. So think of God as in control of every event, providence, and then God changing the hearts of men and overruling evil and bringing people into his kingdom as the messianic rule. Or, if we need to, we can put it very simply, just so we have one word handles for this. You have control or power on the one hand, you have salvation on the other. The saving rule of God must be distinguished from the powerful and controlling rule of God, where every event is controlled by him. Jim? In the one case, he uses evil for his ultimate end, and in the other case, he overcomes evil or changes evil. That's a good way of putting it, too, yes. One is God using evil, the other is God defeating evil. Very good. Okay, now I'm going to draw a second distinction. So let's clear the mental register, change gears. Now here's another thing we have to distinguish. We shouldn't forget that there's a distinction in the Bible between the kingdom of God and the church. There is a distinction between the kingdom of God and the church. These two words do not have precisely the same meaning. I'd like to give you an illustration of that. Acts 28, verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him and his lodging. Is that one? Acts 28. Mm -hmm. okay. And when they had appointed him a day, there came to many to him and his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets and from morning until evening. Right. Now, if, if it were true that kingdom of God equals church, then the two would be interchangeable. Right? For instance, the word bachelor is equal to unmarried male. That's what the word means. So that in any sentence where the word bachelor is found, you could put in its place the expression unmarried male, 
and the sentence would maintain its truth value, whether it's a false sentence or a true sentence, that won't be changed when you make that substitution, right? But now notice what happens if we try to substitute the word church for kingdom in this verse. And when they had pointed him a day, they came to him in his lodging with great numbers, to whom he expounded the matter, testifying of the church of God and persuading them concerning Jesus. That isn't right. Paul, when he taught about the kingdom of God and salvation that was accomplished by Jesus Christ, was not teaching about the church. He was teaching about something much broader than the church. The rule of God, as we've talked about it, whereby he defeats evil and saves his people. Uh huh. Well, what I'm going to be trying to prove here tonight is that the kingdom of God extends beyond the invisible rule of God in our hearts. I want to say that the church is the focal point of the kingdom, but the kingdom is broader than the church. Let me complete just this unit of thought, and then I'll come back to that if it hasn't been clarified. Kingdom and church do not refer to the exact same entity because Matthew 13, verses 38 and 41 tells us something about the scope of the kingdom. What does it tell us? Matthew 13, verses 38 and 41. The field in the parable is the world. In the latter verse, we read that in that field where there is both good seed and bad seed, wheat and tares growing, God will weed out of his kingdom everything that offends. So, obviously, the kingdom is broader than the church because the church is the wheat. But the kingdom is the field, which is the world, inclusive of the church. And when God comes, he will root out of his kingdom all those things which offend. So the scope of the kingdom is the world, inclusive of the doers of iniquity. We know that the kingdom of God, whereby he rules, includes the doers of iniquity. But that's not true of the church. In fact, what I would say is that the biblical um, concept is that the kingdom of God creates the church. The kingdom of God creates the church. It's God's powerful rule by which he breaks evil and saves his people that brings the church into existence. And that in turn, the church then is the doorway into the kingdom. The church has the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Thank you. 
you notice here that the keys of the kingdom are given to the leaders of the church. Now, if kingdom and church were identical, would that make much sense? The keys of the church are given to the church? No, the point is, by entering the church, people come in savingly into the kingdom of God. So, what we're saying here is that you have the rule of God whereby he is overcoming evil. And where God has overcome evil, savingly, that's the church. You have people whose hearts have been converted. Okay? Does that make sense? God's rule, God's overcoming of evil, is more than simply changing the hearts of men and saving them. He's also overcoming evil, for instance, when totally apart from Christian lawyers and Christian involvement, somebody in a court of law who is innocent gets vindicated. Their righteousness is done, justice is done, and evil is thwarted. And so the rule of God is seen in, in, in a sphere broader than the church. God's rule is over the whole world. Because the field is the world, which is his kingdom. Have a question? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really don't understand. I, 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 it may come to me. Okay. I really can't. I really don't. I'm not separating invisible church with kingdom of God. And somehow, when you're talking about church, you to me it looks like you're looking at a perfect, perfect unity as far as as under which it is totally under God, and there are. Okay. Um, some people get salvation outside of church sometimes. Well, our confession teaches that there is no salvation outside of the church. Well, they don't, body of they don't join and join a local church. Yeah, and I'm saying those who don't, there's a real question as to whether they're saved. Oh. Well, but but it's not impossible. You know, say you're out on a desert island, you're converted, well, never get no, back. No, I was thinking about, they, they might. They might do it, but they might get their salvation. Okay. But I think Rita's question is, if you distinguish between the visible and invisible church, why can't you say the kingdom of God is the world, which is the visible church, and then when Jesus comes, he roots out all that uh, offends him in the visible church, and that leaves the invisible church the wheat. The problem is that makes the visible church the world, according to that parable. And you wouldn't want to call the church the world, would you? You wouldn't even want to call the visible church the world. No, but but all those that profess to be, but in their hearts, not everybody that confesses to be is. Only God looks in their heart. Yeah, I agree. A lot of people that fall yeah, I agree with what you're saying about the distinction between visible and invisible church. Mm -hmm. It's just that I think the kingdom of God is distinct from both of those. The kingdom of God is broader than the visible church, and obviously it's broader than the invisible church too. Okay, the invisible church is a subsection of the visible church. Right, mm -hmm. the visible church is this broad circle of people. And then those who are real believers in that broad circle are the invisible church. Because you have the invisible church, the visible church, and what I'm saying is the kingdom of God's broader than, than even that. Because it includes even the terrors that are out in the world. Because Jesus said it is the world. The field is the world. Yeah. If kingdom is the world, why is the church in that 
Oh, because the church, when remember we started by saying the kingdom is God's saving power. Jesus is the Savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is the intent of God's kingdom, that it saves people. And so if people are going to belong to the kingdom in a saving way, they come via the keys of the kingdom, which is the church, which is held by the church. Okay, good. That question I asked in, in light of what you're saying, and as far as the kingdom of God is a broad aspect, including everybody, then could it possibly be that when Satan was tempting Jesus, he was saying here, he is talking about the hearts of people that, that, that have not yet come to the Lord, that, I mean, are part of this kingdom of God and these kingdoms? And in other words, he's not talking about kingdom per se, this, this kingdom, this kingdom, but he's talking about the hearts of people that Christ has not yet got. And with that, it could be a true temptation. I think that... Well, the temptation would be that... Well, he's thinking, I'll give you my answer, then you can, you can correct me. Um, that in order for Christ to get those kingdoms the way he wants them, in the Messianic kingdom, he has to go through his suffering, he has to go through his ministry and his suffer die and rise again and all of that and Satan is offering them to him without doing that so that's the temptation you can have right now Jesus you don't have to go through all that you know it's lying ahead of you here they are you know you can have them which of course he didn't have them to give but it's a tempting thought and if Jesus isn't doesn't know his his mission then he might be tempted to say okay yeah I'll take it if that's and that would be given in the kingdom but but he did yeah. know his mission before. He, he knew his mission. He knew his mission. Well, he believed his mission. But see, the same thing happened with Adam. Adam knew his mission, but then he said, "He got oh, diverted." Wait a second. You mean maybe we yeah. could do it a little faster here by you know? So he knew his mission too, but he doubted. And Christ knew his mission and didn't doubt. But you're right. He wanted those kingdoms, and he's getting them now. Yeah, I think that's a very good explanation. You see, it's a true temptation in the same way that a con man can come to me and try to tempt me to think that by buying this, you know, giving him this money, I can buy this bridge sort of thing. But he's hoping that I'll be either, you know, naive or stupid or, you know, uh, not thinking clearly that day or something. And Satan was hoping that Jesus, though he would know the truth, well, Satan may not have known whether Jesus had this figured out yet or not. But he was hoping that even if Jesus had been told the right way to gain the kingdom, that he could get him to take a shortcut. Try to convince him that, well, maybe Satan has a way of doing it also. After all, Satan offered Adam and Eve, as Jim has suggested, something. That they could be as gods. Well, they were going to be as gods. It's just that what Satan was saying was different than what God had promised. To be godly, the image of God, uh, for Adam and Eve meant righteousness and submission and obedience. Satan meant be as God in the sense of substitute yourself for God. You know, be on a level with God, be a peer of God. And um, so Jesus, in the same way as Adam, might have been tempted to think, well, maybe there's another way to gain this, even though Satan couldn't really do it. But the difference is that he was faithful to God's word and didn't fall for the temptation.
So I, I do think that Satan could have been lying through his teeth about the offer of the kingdoms and still have offered a temptation. I mean, if Satan was stupid enough to think he could ascend above God, then he could have thought he had something to give or just, I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to do something on the psychology of Satan. <laughs> Might he have been so deluded as to think that he could uh, do something? After all, he had controlled religiously the kingdoms of, that, of the world up to that point. Look at all the idolatry and superstition and witchcraft and all the rest throughout the world. Satan might thought that he really had um, gained them and could turn them over to Jesus. Um, a third distinction that ties in with Rita's question, really, that has to be drawn. Let's remember what we've gained, okay? I wish we had a board here. We could put all this up here. There's a difference between providence and the messianic kingdom. There's a difference between the providential rule of God and the messianic rule of God. Now, we also know there's a difference between the kingdom and the church, although they are closely associated. The kingdom creates the church. The church is the passageway into the kingdom in a saving sense. But there's a difference between kingdom and church. Now, there's also a distinction to be drawn thirdly between the kingdom and if we're thinking of the messianic kingdom apart from, that goes beyond the church, okay, we're not thinking of the providential kingdom, we're thinking of the messianic kingdom, and as such, broader than the church. That messianic kingdom needs to be distinguished, uh, we need to distinguish with respect to that messianic kingdom between its Old Testament phase of anticipation its present phase of establishment and its future phase of consummation. Let me put it to you this way. The Messianic Kingdom was anticipated in the Old Testament, established in the first coming of Christ, and will be consummated at the second coming of Christ. Okay, so we can speak of the Kingdom in three different ways, temporally. When the kingdom was anticipated, the Old Testament, as it's been established and is now growing, New Testament, and as it will be completed when Jesus returns. Let's see how the Bible speaks of all three of these. Matthew 21, 43. Taken from whom? The Israelites. Well, what does that mean? How can he take something away from them they didn't have? Well, the Israelites were the kingdom of God up to that point, is what, he's, what that verse implies, doesn't it? He says it's going to be taken from you, the privilege of being the possessors or the occupants of the kingdom of God is going to be transferred to another nation, Jesus says. God's going to wrench it away from Israel and give it to the Gentiles. So, Israel was the kingdom during the Old Testament. There was a sense in which the kingdom was anticipated, and we see the foreshadowing of that kingdom in the Old Testament experience of the Jews. Israel was the foreshadow of God's kingdom. Now, you're 
talking about the kingdom of God there. Yeah, I am. Talking about the messianic kingdom of God, the saving kingdom of God was foreshadowed in Old Testament Israel. The prophets, priests, and Israel itself was not the Old Testament. It was not the kingdom of God. The promise made to Israel was the kingdom of God. No, Israel itself was the kingdom of God. God said, "I make you a kingdom of priests." He said that at Mount Sinai, in Exodus 19. Israel was the kingdom in its phase of anticipation, in its foreshadow form, in its preparatory form. You're talking about a worldly kingdom. Sure am. At that point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit and listen, because maybe this is my, maybe I'm just thinking too much and not just listening. I, I'm really missing something here. I'm very confused. Well, remember I told you that the main reason that people get mixed up about the kingdom of God is they don't draw these distinctions. And when you don't draw distinctions and you use words in three or four different ways and don't know that you're using them in three or four different ways, you're bound to end up in confusion. Um, it might help, though, on your question, Rita, to think about Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul um, thinks of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God Verse 11, he says, Wherefore remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that you were at that time separate from Christ, and here's how he explains being separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What he's saying is, there was a time when you were alienated from the kingdom of God because you weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel. But in Christ, you have been brought near. In Christ, you've been brought into the kingdom by his blood. So the commonwealth of Israel was the kingdom of God. What did David say? David wanted to make all the Gentile nations round about submit to him as God's king. It, Israel was the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament period. God has sent his, uh, his own chosen king on Mount Zion. David, Solomon, on and on. So there is a sense in which Old Testament Israel was the anticipation of the kingdom of God or the foreshadow of the kingdom of God. But now there is another sense in which the kingdom has been established. Not just anticipated, but truly established. Matthew 12, verse 28. Okay, here's an if-then argument. Jesus says, if P, then Q. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then Q, the kingdom of God has come. Now, is P the truth? Has he cast out demons by the finger of God? Well, then what follows? Q, that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus definitely states there that he has established the kingdom of God. And in fact, I'm not sure I can find the passage real quick. Um, Jesus at one point says about John the Baptist, 
that all the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied up until John, and there's none greater than John the Baptist, but then after John, the kingdom of God is declared. So he makes a definite distinction between the ministry of John and the ministry of himself. John is the last prophet of anticipation. You remember, he, what, is, what is the message of John? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's preparing for the coming of the king. And Jesus says, and he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but after John, the kingdom of God is proclaimed. So, yes? Amy has a question. Okay. How can the Gentiles be alienated from the, um, the kingdom if the kingdom is the world? Because they are in the world. Or is that in the Old Testament, Israel was that, and then it established just the world? Oh, I don't think that the kingdom becomes the world until the New Testament. Well, then how can the world not include everybody? It does everybody, well, but not everybody's going to be saved. Then Are you why weren't the, the Gentiles Why weren't they in the kingdom? Yeah, you said they were alienated from the kingdom. In the Old Testament, they were. The kingdom was expressed only in Israel. You had to come to Jerusalem to make sacrifice and be part of the people of God in that way. The Gentiles were not part of it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, if we are Christians, we have been, as it were, brought into the kingdom of God, into the commonwealth of Israel. Without joining the state of Israel, Gentiles by the blood of Christ are now considered as the Jews of the Old Testament were. The people of God. Now, and there's a broader sense in which Christ rules over even unbelievers. Think of my rule over my house, okay? Let's say I have a house and there's um, 20 people living there, servants, you know, family, maybe two or three generations under the same roof. But I'm the patriarch of that house. And what I say goes, I rule over everybody in that house, whether people love me or not. Now, the vast majority of people in the family, the servants, hopefully, will love the patriarch. But whether they love him or not, his word is law. He has come and he rules over that house. Jesus has come and he rules over the world, whether people will love him or not. Okay? And so those who do love him are in the church. Those who don't love him are not in the church. But even though they don't love him, the Bible says he is exercising his, his sovereign rule over them as well. And we see this progressively growing today as more and more nations come under his sovereign sway. Well then, the Israelites were in the church then, and the Gentiles were out of the church, but they were all still in the kingdom. At what point are you talking about? Okay. This passage in in Ephesians, I think the alien, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ. This one says excluded from citizenship in Israel instead of alienated from the kingdom. Commonwealth of Israel. Instead of alienated from the commonwealth. So you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise. And that was their position. They they couldn't be citizens of Israel. And that's what the kingdom of God was in the Old Testament was Israel. Well your original definition was that the kingdom included the whole world even include the world then. Yes, I'm talking now about the kingdom encompassing the entire world right and the church. Well, that's what I said at the very beginning. I said in the Old yes, Testament, 
Things have changed. I was following her too. Things have changed from the Old to the New Testament. Maybe I should have began with this third distinction, the temporal one, and then I could have made it clear that when I said the kingdom is broader than the church, what I meant is in this age, Christ now has been given rule over all of creation, and he's progressively bringing people under his saving rule by putting them into the church. But that isn't the way it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the kingdom was not the world, it was Israel. Now, if you want, a, I think, a beautiful biblical illustration of this very point, now that I've caught on to what you know, the confusion was, God promised to be a God to Abraham, right? The people of Abraham are going to be the people of God. What has Abraham promised? What is the, the land that he has promised, according to Genesis 12 and 17? Canaan. What? Canaan. Canaan, right, Palestine. So he has promised that he's going to be given the land of Canaan, for an inheritance. That obviously is the kingdom of God then. But in Romans 4, when Paul speaks of the promise made to Abraham, he says, and this is really strange, unless you catch the distinction I've taught you, Paul says the promise was made to Abraham that he'd be the heir of the world. All along, Old Testament Israel was only a token of the broader reality that was coming. What God wanted done in Israel is what he now wants done all over the world. Whether well, it's one of the reasons why I believe the law of God, which was binding in the Old Testament, is now binding for all nations today. God was giving a model in Israel. Israel didn't live up to even being the model, by the way. They were pretty miserable subjects. But Israel was to be a model of the kingdom of God, which is now the whole world. So what happened in Israel is kind of like a seed that's supposed to expand out and grow over the whole world. So in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were not the kingdom. Israel was only by way of foreshadow, anticipation. In the New Testament, now the kingdom is the whole world, not just Israel. But even though you're in the world, you're not in the saving. You're not under the saving benefits of the kingdom unless you're in the church. The kingdom is the world today, but you're not under the saving benefits of the kingdom unless you're in the church. And so in that sense, Paul calls the church Israel, the Israel of God. And those who are outside the church in the New Testament are called what? Gentiles. So you see how it's been transferred from Israel and the Gentiles to the church and the world in the New Testament. The difference, though, is that in the New Testament, the world is now destined to become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The church is growing to encompass the entire world. Now you say, now wait a minute, how can Jesus be given a kingdom but not yet rule over some portions of it? Well, that's what we're trying to look at now in this Matthew 13. Jesus says he has established his kingdom because he's cast out demons by the finger of God. Um... That was Matthew 12, 28, excuse me. But now there's another sense in which the kingdom is spoken of, which is its consummated form. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see in this passage how entry into the kingdom is contrasted to being set in, sent into everlasting damnation. On the one hand, there are those who will enter God's kingdom. On the other hand, there will be those who go into everlasting damnation. You see, on the day of judgment, we enter the kingdom. Now, as I see it, you have only two choices. This may sound a little bit harsh. But you either accept the distinctions as I've laid them out tonight, or as best I can have laid them out, or you have a contradictory Bible. Because the Bible says the kingdom was in the Old Testament, and then we have another verse that implies the kingdom isn't there until after John the Baptist. Then you have a verse that says the kingdom is here now, but then another verse that says you don't enter the kingdom until the day of judgment. Now how can it be all these? Well, I want to suggest it's the way you draw a picture. Well, I think it's the way you draw a picture. You know, you sketch it out, you know, and it may be very light. Let's say it's the pencil, you're just getting the... Um, the proportions on the page and all the rest and getting rough drawing. Okay, then you take the next step and you may, you know, draw the definite lines in, but you haven't got all the coloring and so forth. And then a third step, you finally get the coloring and the picture is finished. God's kingdom comes in phases. We have a sketch in the Old Testament, a light pencil drawing, which is the foreshadow of the kingdom, the broad outline. Jesus comes in the New Testament and draws the definite lines, establishes now here are the boundaries, this is the way it's going to be, and now in this period we're coloring in the picture and on the day of judgment the picture will be completed and the kingdom will now be consummated. It will be you know, come to full realization. Okay? And once you see that, then everything you find in the Bible can fall into place. But it, to me, it's, it's so... Um, frustrating to try to read the literature of dispensationalists, for instance, who run back and forth all over the Bible and pick up everything they can about the rule of God, and they try to make it all fit into one particular mold, and it just won't do that. Any more than you try to say that the three steps of painting a picture are, you know, at, at, at all the steps, the same thing. So if you don't draw these distinctions, I think it's going to be very confusing. What are the distinctions? Again, you may be thinking we could stand to review this. <laughs> First of all, we should distinguish between the providence. <laughs> Secondly, we should distinguish between the church and the messianic kingdom of God. And thirdly, when we speak of the messianic kingdom, we should distinguish between its phase of anticipation, Old Testament, its phase of establishment, New Testament, and its phase of consummation after Jesus returns. It, it really would help to have a blackboard because just by drawing two different boxes and then subpoints under the boxes, you could see what I was getting at. Couldn't you draw us a graph and get those next Yeah, I'm going to sign them like that. It's funny because it's a little language and it's just plain language. Sure. My kingdom is not in this world. Well, that's part of what I want to teach you here. If somebody can lend me a pen, I'll give you an idea right now of what we're talking about. Okay, first of all, you want to distinguish between providence. That's God controlling everything, good and evil. 
in the messianic rule, which is God overcoming evil. Not just using evil, as Jim has said, but defeating it. Stopping bad things from happening and people going to hell and making them good people who are going to heaven. So you have providence on the one hand, which is God's power exercised over everything, and then the messianic rule, God's power that breaks evil, the, uh, the reign of evil. Now, within the messianic rule, you want to distinguish between the world and the church. Okay, so over here we have the world and the church. Christ is reigning over the world, and he's reigning over the church. But that isn't the same thing, or else you make the world the church. Okay? Now, in a sense, there's a real important theological truth. We're saying that even where we don't see uh, the good rule of God, Jesus is still the ruler there. It's just a matter of the mopping up exercises. We haven't gotten to that corner of the kingdom and gotten everything in order yet, but that is still his to rule over. As Psalm 2 says, uh, just ask of me, I'll give you the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. So Jesus is the messianic possessor of everything, church and world, but the church is where people are saved. Those who are saved are part of the church. Now, with respect to this messianic rule, where there's a distinction between church and world, you want to distinguish between three temporal periods. The period of anticipation, the period of establishment, and the period of consummation. Okay, so once you get away from the providence of God and talk about the messianic rule, and you draw this distinction between church and world, now temporally, there's a difference between the Old Testament anticipation the New Testament establishment and the Second Coming's consummation. So next time your dispensational friends pull out a chart, say, well, we've got a chart too. <laughs> Our pastor drew this picture for us. It's got to be true. Oh, yes. We can get into that. If you draw these distinctions... Then we can get around to answering the question which I posed at the beginning of our hour. And uh, it's now time to stop. So we'll just have to come back next week and answer the question, is the kingdom of God merely internal or is the kingdom of God an external reality today as well? But study these distinctions this week. And um, also next week I want to study the promises about the kingdom growing and its worldwide dimensions. And then we'll... we'll catch the full implications of Revelation 11:15 that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall rule forever and ever yes when you were talking about the church a while ago uh, you're either in the church uh, Christians are the church of today now what about the Christians that are you talking about the established church what about the people who say they're Christians who want then they really are part of the world. 
they're in the visible church, but they're not in the invisible church. In a sense, that's come up. (laughs) Well, it is true that there is um, the invisible church, those who are really believers, and then there's the world, those who are not believers. But there's another circle, you might put it with dotted lines, between those two that you could call the visible church. There are some in the visible church who aren't really in the invisible, they're really in the world, yet they, you know, go through the motions and profess to be part of the, the real church. So they all three will be the same circle? Well, no, I was talking about the one there's a, there's a little circle of possibilities on the outside here that might be saved, but they aren't inside the circle. I don't know that. Not that they might be saved, they either are or they aren't, All but right, to, us, to us, to us, who can't see their hearts, we just have to say they are, so but we both, know that they will. kind in that, that circle between the Judith is talking about the ones who claim to be Christians but are not within the church. But will not join the church. Yeah, they won't join the local church. That's what I was talking about, Okay, then we've got to get an even lighter dotted line outside that one. These are the people who profess to be Christians yeah. who are not in the visible church. What do you do with those who profess to be Christians who really are who are not in the visible church? The desert island illustration. Somebody converted on a desert island but never can get back to the mainland to join a church. Ordinarily, there's no salvation outside of the church. In the same sense, there's no salvation for those who are adulterers. If Jesus says don't commit adultery and you continue to do that, it shows a wicked and rebellious heart. You don't belong to him. If Jesus says you join the church, take the sacrament, submit to the elders, and you don't do that, it shows you probably have a rebellious heart and you don't belong to him. Now, there are a lot of people today, because of the sad state of the church, who have stayed out of the church, who probably don't like what I just said. I mean, Definitely. would hear that, and they'd say, now, wait a minute. Don't you liken failure to join the church to adultery or you know, any of these other really bad things? But they're both commandments. And as I see it, you can't pick and choose. If our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, there's someone on a desert island saved regardless of whether it's a church. Yeah, remember... They in themselves is a church. The Spirit of God is within that. Well, spiritually, they are joined to the body of Christ through salvation. If their hearts are regenerate, they've been joined to the Savior, and therefore they are joined to His body. That's true. But... What I said is ordinarily, ordinarily, there's no salvation outside of the church. When John was on that island, I, I doubt if he was in church. Wasn't he a prisoner? I mean, well, there may have been a, might have been a, there might have been a visible church on the island of Patmos. I don't know. I don't know that there is. I don't know there wasn't. I don't mean a church building. The prisoners may have had worship services after they, you know, worked the mines on the Lord's Day. But one way or another, a person who has the church available to them and refuses to be part of it and to submit to it is disobeying a commandment of Jesus. That's right. So, it's possible to have marriage when a person is separated from his wife. He is still legally married, although he doesn't have the privileges and benefits of marriage. And likewise, a person can be saved on a desert island, but that isn't the ordinary state. They should be, when they are on the mainland, uh, part of the body of Christ in a visible outward sense. Where does it say they should they have to support to join the church? Well, one of the places is Hebrews. It says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. Um, 
then in First Corinthians, you remember a couple of Sundays ago in the evening service I talked about the church, which by its very nature gathers. When you gather together, Paul says, that's the thing that is characteristic of the church, that it gathers together. Yeah. Okay. So, Well, this has been a good discussion. We've run over time. I'm going to stop at this point and um, hope you'll all be back and bring somebody with you. Let's double our size and we'll continue our discussion of the kingdom so that we can understand the full import of what Revelation is telling us when it says, now that Jerusalem has fallen, the kingdom of God has been fully established on earth. Let's pray. Lord, please clarify our thinking, and above all, make it faithful to your word, that we might not be misled into false conclusions and false expectations. We pray that we would be true to the scriptures, that our minds might clearly perceive the outline and structure and distinctions that have to be drawn with respect to the kingdom of God. And for all of our confusions and the need to learn more and have things clarified, we would express from the bottom of our hearts our basic joy that we are part of that kingdom and that whatever takes place in this world takes place for our good because we are on the winning side, that we belong to the Savior, the Prince, the one who rules over earth's remotest ends. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.